The topic today is Arafat, Sharon, and the grace of forgiveness. The world has reached a crisis time, possibly without parallel in the history of the human race. Because the sons of Abraham do not understand the gospel of grace, the world, including the United States of America, is facing a third world war. I've visited the Middle East on many, many different occasions. I've been to Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, um, Iran, and also Kuwait. It's an interesting thing that when you leave aside the politics of the situation, Israelis and Arabs are very much the same. If you look beneath the surface, people everywhere are basically the same. I met some wonderful, wonderful Egyptians. I love Egypt. Thirty years ago, when I visited Egypt for the first time, I met an old Coptic. His name was Peter. He was then an old man. He had been Howard Carter's timekeeper. He was a descendant of the pharaohs, even looked like the pharaohs. A wonderful person. And then in Israel, when I went down to the Western Wall, as it used to be called, the Wailing Wall, I saw there all of these young Jewish young people. And as we were televising, they were laughing and the girls were giggling just like they do in America. I thought, what beautiful girls. The person who showed me around Israel who became a friend was Yohanan Eldad, strong Orthodox Jew, a wonderful person. When I went across to Jordan, I met there the man in charge of all archaeological sites for that part of the world, Dr. Adman Hadizi, a Muslim. And he told us as we were going to go down to the sites, we think, of Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going back, he said, to the days of the Old Testament. They know these things. Wonderful person. He said, if there's anything I can do, I will do it to help you. And he did. When I went to Syria, I was by myself when I got off the plane in Damascus and had to drive 250 miles by taxi up to Tel Mardik where they had discovered Ebler. I drove with the taxi driver all day. Sitting in the back seat for half of the day were two young men armed to the teeth from the Syrian secret service. Scary types. But the driver was a gentleman. That night when I got back because of some problems in Syria, the airport was closed. And so I had to get a taxi and drive from Damascus via the Golan Heights down to Amman by myself with an Arab taxi driver. The car broke down on the Golan Heights. All around us we could see the shadowy figures of the Syrian soldiers. We were treated with nothing less than courtesy. In Baghdad, where we have a church, I have conducted on several occasions meetings, evangelistic meetings. I've been placed under house arrest in Baghdad for taking pictures of Saddam's palace. But by the military and by the government officials, I was treated with complete courtesy and 
hospitality. When I left, they sent three limousines to take me and my team to the airport. They told us they'd hoped that we would come again. It was the same in places like Kuwait, also in Iran where the people I met there were some of the kindest and the most hospitable people in the world. All of these people, well, most of them are the sons of Abraham. When you look beneath the surface of the Jew, when you look beneath the surface of the Arab, they are basically the same people. They are people like you and me in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus. They are like you and I, sinners in need of redemption. And there's only one solution to the terrible problem that is facing the world because the Middle East, these two tribes could pull the rest of us down into oblivion, but by the grace of God. And there's only one solution to the problem. And it's not a human solution. And I'm not optimistic that the solution is going to be found and practiced. Because what we're seeing here in the Middle East today is nothing new. Some say America should be in there with troops. Don't we realize that both these tribes have been fighting each other now for 3,850 years? Goes back to Abraham, to Sarah, and Hagar. But there is only one permanent solution to the hatred between human beings. And that is reconciliation with God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to take your Bibles, dear friends. Come with me over here to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Book of Ephesians, chapter 2. And I want you to notice, please, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. The great apostle says, Paul, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then verse 12 and onwards, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The Bible tells us that the only solution to our human sinfulness and our hatreds is the grace of God. And the grace of God, not through Muhammad, and not even the grace of God through Moses, but the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only permanent solution. You see, you can't change the other person. You can't change. Sharon cannot change Arafat and vice versa. We can only change ourselves. And the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is our peace. I want to read you something out of Time magazine that talks about two of the leading characters in this dreadful scenario. These magazines sort of tear at your heart. Here's a copy of, of Newsweek. You see the front, don't you? A Jewish girl and a beautiful Arab girl who in desperation blew herself 
up. The murderers who call themselves martyrs and just some of the victims. In this Time magazine over here, which is written, I believe, by a secular journalist, you have an appraisal of both the contenders for power. Yasser Arafat. It is fair to assume that there are places Yasser Arafat would rather be than imprisoned in his own compound with Israeli tank commanders as wardens. But it's not by mistake that he wound up there. Even if Arafat didn't anticipate exactly how the situation would unfold, this is a war he wanted. For some time after the first Oslo Peace Accord in 1993, Arafat appeared to have genuinely embraced the idea of pursuing his political goal, an independent Palestinian state through negotiations alone. But something flipped. That became evident two summers ago when at talks at Camp David, the Israelis offered him their best deal yet on a state. By objective measures, this offer still wasn't good enough, but Arafat didn't merely reject it. He could have asked for more or counter-proposed. Instead, he left the table, went home and fueled a new uprising which led to this war. Does this man want peace? No, this man does not want peace. Why? Arafat is old, ailing, and preoccupied with how he'll be remembered when he's gone. The only way for him to be Arafat, the dealmaker, founder of Palestine, would be to sell short the Palestinian dream. No Israeli leader will give him a state unless he relinquishes claim to all or most of East Jerusalem. And then it goes on. And it goes on to say, this is a man who has broken his word a thousand times, and a man who is behind the terrorists. What amazes me is the attitude of Muslim leaders who in their piety say, we are standing for what is right, and they send young people to blow themselves up. Why don't they blow themselves up and solve all the problems? But they don't do this because it's the lust for power. And then Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon isn't all that interested in peace. He would take it if it came his way, but he doesn't actually believe in it. And so he has indulged in dreams, so he doesn't indulge in dreams of it isn't inclined to take risks for it on the chance that it might be real. Sharon does believe in one thing. He believes in fighting. What he's known his entire life. He has participated in each of Israel's wars starting with the 1948 War of Independence. As far as he's concerned, that battle is still going on. Israel is still fighting for its very life, he believes, because the Arabs cannot be trusted to forego their hostility. He's probably right. Let alone uh, alone to accept that a Jewish state within their midst is an irreversible fact. Perhaps they never will, but a campaign to win their hearts and minds is not the kind of mission he considers his responsibility. The matter doesn't interest him much. Sharon is not much of a global thinker. He is not informed by theory, but by what has produced results. Sharon sees what's before him and what he has already seen, which is lots of fighting, all of it ending with Israel victorious. All but perhaps the Lebanon war Israel launched when Sharon was Minister of Defense in 1982. And that wasn't a total loss. Yasser Arafat and his Palestine Liberation Organization were run out of Lebanon and off to a more distant exile in Tunisia. This has been going on between these two men for a generation. Even if Israel didn't lose in Lebanon, Sharon did. 
The country blamed him for the terrible casualties suffered by Israeli soldiers. A government commission judged that he bore indirect responsibility for massacres in two Palestinian refugee camps, Sabra and Shatila, by Israel's proxy militia in Lebanon. Sharon was compelled to give up his beloved defense ministry. His ethic of aggressive vigilance seemed to be discredited. His self-sought image as Israel's super defender was in shambles. He stood accused of leading the country to excess and to shame. Most of us have forgotten what happened in Lebanon. The Arabs haven't. There were hundreds of innocent men, women and children, not fighting people. And Sharon stood aside and encouraged a right-wing group of Roman Catholic fascists. This is history. And they hated the Arabs. And so the Israel stood aside and let the Christians butcher them. And this man stood and watched it all. And so he was thrown out of the government. So here are the two contestants. Neither of these men wants peace. They want to be heroes. And Colin Powell, and our dear president, is going to try to save the situation. God help them. Both these men have many things in common. Sharon and Arafat. They're both sons of Abraham. One through Hagar, one through Sarah, both through Abraham. They're both fighting for a cause and both have something else very much in common. They both believe that violence is the solution. Violence and more blood. A cartoon sometimes tells a tremendous story. In Newsweek just a few weeks ago, there was a picture of a merry-go-round. You know what that is, don't you? Carousel thing. And up the top of the merry-go-round, instead of having horses going up and down, it had these words, an eye, a tooth, an eye, a tooth, an eye, a tooth, an eye, a tooth. And it goes around and around forever. The Arabs blow up some innocents, and the Israelis send in bulldozers and destroy the homes of innocents. There must be something better than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There is the gospel of Christ. Time gives a scenario, one of the Time magazines over there. It talks about what could happen, God forbid. That as the fighting goes on, it's going to get out of control. Egypt is going to come in with thousands of tanks, but only come up to the border. The Syrians will come in with thousands of tanks only up to the border. The Jordanians would almost do anything but fight the Israelis, but they'll be forced to come in with tanks up to the river. The Syrians, the Jordanians, the Egyptians there on the border, and Saddam Hussein will come across with thousands of tanks, and biological weapons. Will Israel be defeated? No. Israel has the best army perhaps in the world, some of the finest soldiers, courageous. She also has 400 first-line fighter jets and the best tanks in the world, and Israel will obliterate the enemy. And when the enemy is obliterated, she will also obliterate the moderate Arabs. And the radicals will take over. And it'll be worse than the world has ever known and could lead to the Third World War. You've all heard of Mr. Netanyahu, who was once the president or the prime minister of Israel. He is a hawk extremely militant, he says there is one solution. And humanly speaking, he may be right. He says, we will build a wall around Israel. 
We will kick the Arabs out and we will have Jews inside, Arabs outside, and we will have a 20-foot wall. The problem is walls can't keep out hate or hand grenades or rockets or atom bombs. Mr. Netanyahu has a wonderful plan to take Israel and the world back to the Middle Ages, the times of the medieval. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take Israel back to the days when you were safe behind a wall. When Billy Graham came here to the city of Los Angeles to run a great crusade some 30 years ago, he met with all the pastors in the area and some of them were skeptics. They knew everything but knew nothing. And one man got up and he said, Dr. Billy Graham, you're going to run an evangelistic campaign. You're going to get up and you're going to preach that old Bible. He said, did you know this? You're going to take the church in Los Angeles back 50 years. A friend of mine was there. He saw the evangelist start to rise to his feet with his mind working. And as he got to his feet, he turned to his critic and he said, my friend says that I'll take the church back 50 years. He said, that is not my intent. I do not wish to take the church back 50 years. I wish to take the church back 2,000 years. Now, Mr. Netanyahu wishes to take Israel back two or 300 years. I want to tell you there's a better way not to build walls but to break down walls. And not to take the church and Israel back two or three hundred years, but to take the church and to take Israel back to the days of Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus is our peace and he has broken down the wall of hostility. Notice a better plan. Would you come over here to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6? Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. The prophet Isaiah says, and I want you to notice the words in the Bible. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. Say the words. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen carefully. There is no peace on the planet without the Prince of Peace. There is no peace in the human heart without the Prince of Peace. The Bible tells us he is our peace. You all know what Jerusalem means, don't you? Jerusalem. It means possession of peace. But Jerusalem has never known peace since it rejected the Prince of Peace. Now there are some preachers who are saying that what is going to happen is that the messianic age is going to come to Israel and the desert is going to rejoice and blossom as the rose and all of this stuff. It is not taught in the Bible. There is no peace without the prince of peace. And this tells me you cannot have peace unless you have a supernatural gospel. You can try every scheme and all the nations have tried every scheme and nothing will work unless until the heart of man is renewed by the grace of God. What Arafat needs, General Sharon needs, they both need new hearts. Hearts renewed by the grace of God. And that is something General Colin Powell cannot enforce upon them. The only lasting solution is the supernatural gospel. 
The gospel teaches that man is alienated from his brother naturally because man is alienated from God. The Bible tells me in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve produced a son. And the Bible tells me his name was Cain. And he murdered his brother. The first man born on planet earth was a terrorist and a murderer. The first man born could not even get along with his own brother. Why? Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as the great preacher Spurgeon said in his eloquent sermons, he said, within us courses the black blood of Adam. We have in our veins the black blood of Adam. And every man, because he's alienated from God, is naturally alienated from his brother. This is the truth. And there are no exceptions. Jews and Arabs and Americans and Australians, every one of us, we all stand in need of redemption. And we all need forgiveness. Let me tell you something that I've thought about a lot recently and I've come to believe it. We have a rough idea where the Garden of Eden was. A rough idea. It certainly wasn't in North America or in Australia or in Great Britain. The Bible tells us it was in the area of certain rivers. It tells us that. One apparently is the Nile and the river Euphrates and the Tigris and then another river that we can't identify. But basically the Garden of Eden was in the land of the Middle East. That's where it was. It is in that land which is called in the scriptures the land. That's what it's called. It's called the land. When the Bible talks about the land, it refers to the Middle East or Israel particularly. It was in the land that man rebelled against God and lost his eternal salvation. But for the grace of God, it was in the land. It was where they're fighting today. This is where it started, where they are fighting today in this vicinity. It was in Jerusalem or outside Jerusalem, just a little throw, hands throw, stones throw, that the Messiah came. And the Messiah came and he died on the cross. He died on the cross for the sins of the whole wide world. They put him on the cross. At nine in the morning, he was dead by three in the afternoon when they took him down. He died not because of the terror of the cross, but because of the terror of sin. The Bible says, God made him who knew no sin to be, become sin for us, for the guilt of our sin. The nails drove in when him they crucified. And the reason that this very site that saw the blood of the Messiah is today drenched in blood again is because that Messiah was rejected. And so we can politic, we can talk, and we can give the Egyptians and the Israelis more millions and millions and millions and billions, but it is not going to change the heart because Christ alone is our peace. And when he died on the cross, he died that you and I might receive forgiveness. The most difficult thing for the human heart to do is to recognize that we are sinners because we are born with a, a bias towards sin and we are born with self-righteousness. We are born perceiving everybody else's sin 
The Jews can see the sin of the Arabs, and the Arabs can see the sin of the Jews, but they can't see their own sins. And neither can you and I, but for the grace of God. And Jesus died on the cross to bring us to God so that we can repent of our sins and receive forgiveness. And remember this, this is tremendously important, only a person who has been forgiven can forgive. Only a person who has received mercy can show mercy. Only a person who is in grace can be gracious to his enemies. If you look here at the blackboard, I could have taken many other blackboards, but this is the human situation. Jews versus, versus Arabs, Catholics versus Protestants, such as in Northern Ireland. Hindus versus Muslims, blacks against whites in North America, especially. Blacks against blacks, especially in Africa, where they have genocides. One tribe will fight another tribe. When I went to Africa, I would not, could not tell the difference between a Zulu and, and some other tribe, but they knew, and they killed each other, by the thousands. In Rwanda, probably a million. Muslims versus Christians. Burning Christian churches. But remember, in the Crusades that I spoke about a few weeks ago, the Christians murdered the Muslims by the hundreds of the thousands. That is history. And uh, I've thrown this in here too. Husbands versus wives. Because what goes on in the Middle East is simply an illustration of what often goes on in the human heart. Why do we have so many divorces? Because people can't get along. Serbs against Croatians. How long has it gone on for? Hundreds of years. Armenians versus Turks. The Armenians hate the Turks and the Turks hate the Armenians. And it's not getting any better. Serbs hate the Muslims. And we often have a warfare between children and their parents. Why? Because man is alienated from God. And because he is alienated from God, he's alienated from his brothers and his sisters. The gospel of Christ is not easy. If anybody tells you to practice the gospel of Christ and it is easy, it is because they have never had a problem in their lives. Forgiveness is never, never easy. Jesus said, love your enemies. He said that. These are the words of our Lord. This is a commandment from God. It is not easy. Please look at Matthew 5, 38 and onwards. Matthew chapter 5. And verse 38 and onwards, where our Lord is giving the foundational teachings of the kingdom. Matthew 5, 38 and onwards, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. My friend, we do not do that today, we who are saved by grace. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's tough. It's the toughest thing in the world is to love somebody who hates you. 
If Jesus were in the Middle East today, and he is, though he is not recognized, he's there by his spirit, but he's unrecognized, Jesus would say, President Arafat, love General Sharon. Love him. I know he massacred some of your people in Lebanon. Forgive him. And he would say, General Sharon, love President Arafat. I know he's a liar. I know he is unreliable. I know he's behind young people blowing themselves up. Love your enemies. Forgive your enemies. If any of us should be so naive as to think this comes naturally to our hearts, then think again. Think of the times. Can we be honest enough to think of the times when we have hurt people? When we have sinned against people? You know, we are so blind in our sins, it is always the other person's fault. Is that not true? It is always the other person's fault. But I want you to think of those people who have hurt you, who have worked to destroy you. I want you, as I'm talking, to visualize that person who has worked to hurt you and destroy you. Can you think of any? Can you think of some? Or is it too painful or are you in denial? I can think of a bunch. <laughs> Jesus says, love them. I don't ever read of the Muslims saying, love your enemies. They say, blow them up. And the Jews quote the text, Eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. That is Moses. But we have a greater one than Moses among us. And that is Jesus. The law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It is not easy. So Jesus says, love the person who hates you, who has destroyed your home, who has stolen from you. And we say it is an utter impossibility for our human heart to love an enemy. It is an impossibility for Sharon to love President Arafat. It is an impossibility. And that is why Christ came down to this earth with a supernatural gospel. Our religion that we believe in and the religion of Christ is not a normal religion and it does not appeal in many facets to the human heart. It goes against the human heart when God says, love your enemies. President Mandela, whom I consider to be a very good man, was put in prison for many, many years. When he got out, he said, we must teach the people who are hurt the black people who are hurt by the white people to forgive them because we cannot hold on to hatred. He who holds on to hatred develops a festering sore, a sore that will never heal and the whole body becomes a putrefying mass of rottenness. Very, very unattractive is a person who holds on to hate. This is the problem in the Middle East. The holding on to hate. At a museum that shall remain anonymous in the Middle East, there is a memorial and a museum concerning a great atrocity that took place and written in letters in the marble are the words we never forgive and we never forget. 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 
We never forgive and we never forget. We never forgive and we never forget. And so it is true that while there is a hell that comes at the end of time, there is a hell that people make for themselves. The only solution is God's grace. Now, Jesus told a story about two debtors. One debtor owed the master 10,000 talents. I did some research about this this week. 10,000 talents wages for 150,000 years. $7,500,000,000 worth he owed the master. But then the man went out and he found a servant who owed him a hundred denarii, wages for a hundred days, maybe 20,000. The servant owed the master a debt that was 375,000 times greater than the debt that was owed to him. The master is the Lord. I owe the Lord inconceivably greater debt than any debt that is owed to me by you. One to 375,000, the Lord said. And thus he said, forgive. Listen carefully to this. You're not going to forget this and this will trouble you. With, with each passing day, with each passing week, each passing month, each passing year, Unforgiven sin is being piled up in the world. And that great load of sin is filled with hate and poison. And in the book of Revelation it says, an angel comes down, he opens the bottomless pit. And out of the bottomless pit there comes a great cloud. And out of the cloud there comes all of these monstrous creatures like locusts. It is a picture of a world that has progressively rejected the gospel. And in the end, there is a great monstrous cloud and it says terrible torment is given to the sons of men. You can read this in the apocalypse. There is only one thing to do with sin. Stop it accumulating. Forgive. Accept forgiveness Say, God, I accept forgiveness. I was in debt for 375,000, but this man was in debt to me for a dollar. Therefore, and Jesus said, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, neither will I forgive you. There is no forgiveness there is no salvation unless I forgive my brother who has sinned against me from the heart. That is why it is a supernatural gospel. It is not easy. But the other way is a million times harder, I would remind you. A million times harder. What shall we do? In 1987, an IRA bomb went off. Northern Ireland, you have hating Catholics, fighting, hating Protestants, all for the love of God. All saying their prayers. Such an evil religion is their religion because it is not the religion of God. And this religion can be in any church. The bomb went off. There was a man who was a tailor. He was a devout Methodist Christian. His name was Gordon Wilson. His daughter was with him, the joy of his heart. She was 20 years of age. They were covered by five feet of bricks and concrete. As she was being crushed to death and he held her hand, the last words she said to him were, Daddy, I love you very much. When they got her to hospital, she lasted for two hours, and then she died. He went on television, and he said, 
I hold no grudge. Can you believe that? Could you say that? Because this is the test of our faith. This is the test of our Christianity. He said, I hold no grudge. He asked for a meeting with the IRA, not the IRS. That may stand in need of redemption too. But he met with the man who had actually planted the bomb. He said, enough is enough. You are hurting too. You've lost children. He said, I forgive you. I hold no grudge. The nation was so moved, they elected him to parliament. When he died, only recently, Southern Ireland, Ireland proper, Northern Ireland, the British province, all of Great Britain mourned for him. You and I cannot change the Middle East. I doubt if America can. I doubt if good General Powell can, and a good God-fearing man he is. I doubt if the president can. I cannot change others. I cannot change you. But I can change me. Therefore, my message is this. Believe in the Christ of the cross who died to forgive us. Accept Jesus as the Messiah. Do not reject him as the people did in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Let us recognize our own personal sin, that we're all sinners. And let us accept the forgiveness that God gives to us as a free gift when we come in sincerity and in faith and repentance. Let us accept the forgiveness and forgive those who have sinned against us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you please kneel down? Our Father, we thank you today that in Jerusalem, well nigh 2,000 years ago, the Almighty God incarnate in a man, Jesus, the God-man, rejected by his own people, went to the cross to bear the sin of the world, the sin of the Jew and the sin of the Arab, the sin of the American, the sin of the Russian, the sin of the Englishman, the sin of the Australian, the sin of the Latino, the sin of the Asian, the sin of every person. And he went through the darkest, most horrifying experience to bring us to God and to make an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we poor, stumbling sinners with the black blood of Adam in our veins through faith and repentance may receive forgiveness and absolution from all sin without money and without price. Now, Father, You've asked us to do something very, very hard. It's easy to do it when we sit in church or when we're on our knees. But you've told us to forgive other people who sin against us. To forgive people who have been mean and nasty. But then, Lord, we know that most of us have on occasions been mean and nasty too. Or at least that's what we're told. Dear Lord, 
put so much of the love of Jesus in our hearts that we will be enabled to do the most amazing thing, and that is to love the loveless, to love the spiteful and the mean and the malicious, even a terrorist. Because you've told us, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Help us, dear Father, to let our resentment go. Many of us, Lord, have been keeping a chronicle of the things that have been done to us by husbands and wives and children and in-laws and outlaws for at least 20, 30, or 40 years, many of us cannot remember to put out the trash can, but we can remember what somebody said to us 40 years ago. And we have been loading up a burden of sin. And that burden of sin gets heavier with the years to carry. We would confess all of this to you today. We would pray for your forgiveness and your absolution of our sin. And today we would consciously decide now to forgive. As we're praying in church with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, how many will say this prayer? This is a double prayer. I ask for forgiveness of God and I choose by the grace of God to forgive all those who have sinned against me. Can you raise your hand if you can say that? You know, there's a wonderful comfort that comes when you say that prayer. It's like letting it go. When you accept Christ, you're free to love. Lord, we're raising our hands and our hearts. And by your grace, we're accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Messiah. We're choosing to love rather than hate. And we're choosing to forgive rather than pile up a load of garbage. Take it all today, dear Father. And may the supernatural gospel of Christ be real in us every day. Bless these dear people with your grace. Put your hand over the Middle Eastern situation. Hold back, dear Father, the winds of strife until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. We worship you, we bless you, we pray that you'll bless the president at this difficult time. Bless and protect General Colin Powell, this good man. Protect him from the bullet or the knife. Bring him back to his family safely. Oh God, we pray that you will open a window of hope in this part of the world that people will realize that all this has come upon us because we turned away from you. And may there be an earnest seeking of God. So we worship you, bless you, thank you, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.